0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 25th of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster and on today's show...
1: It was just announced... There was no
2: collusion with Russia, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard.
1: There was no collusion with Russia. There was no obstruction and none whatsoever. And it was a complete and total exoneration.
0: The Mueller report clears Donald Trump of colluding with Russia in the 2016 US presidential election. After Italy signs on to China's Belt and Road Initiative in defiance of the European Union, can the EU maintain its bonds of unity? My guests Isabel Hilton and James Rogers will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Venezuela falls out with the International Development Bank as two Russian planes reportedly carrying military equipment and dozens of troops land in the country. And as Islamic State loses its final piece of territory to fighters with the Syrian Democratic Forces, experts warn that despite the loss of its caliphate, IS is still a major threat. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliette Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are James Rogers, Head of International Journalism Studies at City University London, and Isabel Hilton. She is the editor of China Dialogue. So welcome both of you to the programme. Now, Donald Trump has been handed one of the best days of his presidency so far by Special Counsel Robert Mueller. He'd spent two years investigating claims that Mr. Trump's campaign team had colluded with Russia to help him win the 2016 US presidential election. Mueller's long-awaited report, which was released over the weekend, concluded there was no evidence to support the allegation, although it was inconclusive on whether the president had obstructed justice. Well, Mr Trump, who's previously called the Mueller inquiry a witch hunt, said it was, quote, an illegal takedown that failed and that he had been completely exonerated. Now, this is something which I'd like to put to both of you, because the The Mueller's report, it's it's very confusing when you weigh it up against a number of points because, for example, we know that some of Mr. Trump's key associates were questioned by the Mueller team. Some of them, of course, were later convicted. Russia reached out to Mr. Trump during the election. He also asked for Moscow's help when he was out on the stump. He told Vladimir Putin he trusted his opinion more than US intelligence services and he's also taken positions that appear to favour Russia above America. So against all of that, the findings... Of uh, the Mueller report do seem a little bit confusing, don't they, Isabel?
2: Indeed. I'm being um, very kind there, by the indeed, way. Indeed. <laughs> oh, yes. And uh, you might add to that the fact that he was, that he continued to try to negotiate building a hotel in Moscow during the campaign and lied about it. And if you look at the number of of Trump's close associates who are now serving time or or facing new charges, it's really quite impressive. So total exoneration, I think, would be overstating it. Um, But I think the disappointment for the Democrats is that there has been an anticipation of a big reveal at the end of the Mueller inquiry. And actually. What we appear to know is what we already did know, which is that a number of his his associates were crooks and, you know, uh, liars and and shysters. No surprise there. Um, That there were these contacts, no surprise there. But that Mueller, who did not subpoena Donald Trump in all of this process, um, and his lawyers were very against him testifying, Mm because he can't tell the same story and you know within have a 5 crumbled minute under a fierce Indeed. interrogation well i mean he would have crumbled or, or or just tried to lie his way out and you know as we know from nixon it's the cover up that does it you know as much as the mm. initial crime so they were probably right to do that but that means that there's a kind of hole in the heart of the story which is donald trump's actions and you see that in particular about the obstruction of justice, mm. because two things there: there is um, Mr. Barr, who is uh, Donald Trump's appointee, who did his job audition by writing a 19-page paper on how a president couldn't be um, charged with the, <laughs> obstruction of justice, um, and and who has, you know, issued the expected result. But that hinges on the president's intent when he did something. Mm. He's entitled, you know, to fire James Comey, etc. But saying that he did it over Russia would seem to be an obstruction of justice.
0: I'd like to pick up on something which you said in that answer and to to put it to James, because when you look at the analysis of this, James, there Mm. is a sense that maybe um, the Democrats, other liberals, whoever, perhaps expected too much from the Mueller inquiry. He was doing his job and they expected him to find a smoking gun that would ultimately bring down the president. It's not his job to bring down presidents, it's his job to find evidence. Clearly he didn't get it.
1: That's right and I think in that sense this is why you know, some certain large sections of the of the, uh, of the Democrats opinion are pretty disappointed by this because I think while we try to Uh, to fathom just the extent to which this does uh, cause further problems for Mr. Trump and he clearly says he's been entirely exonerated. It is true to say, I think, that it has reduced the prospects of his being impeach certainly on this issue anyway but there's no reason to answer any serious charges and there's no basis there for an impeachment there are though I think at least two issues here um, and the first of those questions is did Russia try to interfere in the US election and very many still believe that they did.
0: Mm, even though they have to deny it just to give the other side of the argument They
1: do yes and that's right but I mean and but and did they work with Mr Trump's campaign and now on this case it seems to have been largely a no mm. on the second because question. Because
0: Muda did actually say they reached out but, but well, they from did, what we I think know we don't know how much of a response they got. If
1: we cast our minds back, I think there's, there's something here which talks about the possible naivety of, of Mr. Trump and his supporters in that inexperience as they were in politics and diplomacy. They were quite experienced in business, obviously, and they were used to doing these kind of uh, deals, possibly in business, to get things done and meeting and talking with people without necessarily, in this case, considering how inappropriate that might have been in a diplomatic um, or a political context. And so um, I think th- this won't entirely go away, but as I say, I think the fact that there is no um, serious smoking gun, as you say, has significantly reduced the chances of his being impeached.
0: Right, but just because a smoking gun hasn't been found by the Mueller team, it doesn't necessarily mean it can't be found elsewhere because there are other investigations that are going on around Trump, certainly his business activities, the foundation, and invariably other people are likely to get sucked into this.
2: Absolutely. And, and I mean, just to recap on what we do know, I mean, Russia certainly did interfere in that election. There was, after all, you know, the hacking and the release of the emails, which had a a massive impact on public opinion. Um, Just before the election, there was the conspiracy, it would appear with WikiLeaks and so on. So all of that, um, I think, remains unchallenged. Um, You just can't locate the email in which Donald Trump says oh that's great go ahead and do it I mean that's great was certainly said but not go ahead and do it although he did call on the campaign for Russia to Mm. you know do something anyway that's all as it were under the bridge but what happens now is that this whole process will go in two directions It, it, it will go into the um The investigations by the House committees, which are already looking at this, so the Judicial Committee will pick up on the obstruction of justice. The Intelligence Committee is a little bit more complicated because that was predicated on Russian interference. But also, as you say, it will critically go into the courts, particularly in New York. Where Trump has conducted some of his business, and there is a, a a long list of of things to investigate there, from money laundering to you know associations with gangsters to um, to to lying about the size of his wealth to mm. obtain uh, loans. And you this know, was
0: referred to by Michael Cohen as well when all he all of testified. that is
2: now on the record and on the judicial record. And and these things are crimes. Mm. So I. I don't think he's out of the wood yet. I think mm-hmm. the Democrats are going to have to calibrate their investigations a little bit in order not to look as though they're conducting a witch hunt. But the judicial authorities, you know, they will take their course. Mm.
0: But in mm. terms of, of the verdict uh, shaping, uh, if you like, uh, Russia, well, America's foreign policy towards Russia, are we likely to see, James, uh, Mr. Trump tilting more in that direction that yes he 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 has taken the steps but is he does he does he now feel that he's been given a free hand to do pretty much what he wants given what um, some sectors of the public expected Muller to deliver but which he's, he's comprehensively mm. failed to do?
1: I think possibly to an extent but I think the other thing is um, you know, being associated with Russia is not necessarily a great thing. There are many parts of Mr. Trump's own constituency which will gladly forgive him that but there are not um, necessarily large parts of the electorate as a whole that will see it in those terms And so I think he is going to have to be careful I mean it's almost interesting to note today there's a certain degree of crowing from Moscow with, uh, with both um, Mr. Putin's spokesman and the foreign minister coming out with statements saying that, you know, Mr. Putin's spokesman saying, it's hard to find a black cat in a dark room if Mm -hmm. it isn't there, he says, referring to the meddling. An old Chinese uh, uh, proverb, apparently. uh, 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 I think
2: one of the many not old Chinese proverbs that are bandied
1: around. Um, uh, And the (laughs) Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Moscow has also said that this, uh, refers to this idea about Russian meddling to be groundless defamation. Well, it doesn't show that at all actually. But I think it's going to be difficult for, um, Mr. Trump's going to have to think carefully about how he proceeds with this. I mean, I think He's widely seen not to have come off, not to have made his first summit meeting last summer with Mr. Putin a great success, and I think largely seems to have been rather outwitted by his Russian counterpart. So I think he's going to have to proceed with a degree of caution. But obviously he's feeling rather triumphant today. He's and has been very good today. 24, 36 hours or Absolutely. so.
0: Absolutely. Okay, let's move on now to Italy because it's the first European Union and G7 country to sign up to a major economic project that will boost China's trade in Asia and beyond. Its so-called Belt and Road Initiative. Now, 29 deals worth $2.8 billion were signed between the government and the Chinese leader Xi Jinping during his visit to Rome. Italy's involvement couldn't be more timely as its beleaguered economy struggles with massive debts and weak growth. However, the move has worried Italy's EU allies, which regard China as a major economic threat that could weaken the Union. I guess the first thing really, is, about is why
2: is Italy such an attractive fit for China? Well, because uh, Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative is in some difficulty. It's had a very bad year, um, you know, there have been a whole series of countries that find that that Chinese money is rather expensive. Uh, the projects don't necessarily yield a return, and they've had to, you know, they've got into debt problems. The most notorious um, was Sri Lanka, which uh, in which China built a port. Um, Sri Lanka ended up paying an enormous amount of its... Uh, of its national income in uh, debt service arrangements with China and eventually simply had to give the port to China for 99 years, rather like you know, Hong Kong, frankly, um, in order to relieve themselves of the debt. And there has been there have been a number of projects that have been cancelled. So Xi Jinping has a big summit coming up in Beijing on the Belt and Road and it was looking pretty threadbare. So to get Italy, uh, the first G7 country to sign on, is really quite... Uh, a coup for Xi Jinping why Italy wanted to do it well it's a mess it's crossed with the with the European Union and it thinks that this is going to be easy money i would very much doubt that because what China has its eye on is the port of Trieste. And China is trying to rebalance European trade from north to south, at least it's trying to get a really important grip on the Mediterranean. And it already um, pretty much owns the port of Piraeus in Greece, Mm. which, which Greece sold when it was also in difficulties. So, China has this Knack of picking on weak <laughs> and needy countries. Be warned, post Brexit Britain. Um uh, and I, China- I, I had a feeling that was going to come in somewhere. <laughs> and, and China also has set up its own organisation in Europe called 16 Plus One, which is composed of some countries which are in the EU and some which are not. And this is very threatening to European Union. So I think the European Commission is pretty fed up. Yeah. so a
0: Faustian pact, and um, given the, the example of uh, Sri Lanka and, and, and Greece as well. But broadening this out, James... There is a sense that by inviting countries to be part of this Belt and Road initiative, what China is doing is that it's basically pitching itself as the architect of a new world order. That's Mm. really the underpin to what, what Isabel's saying here. And basically, you get all these other countries on board, but if you like, they're Santa's helpers.
1: Yeah, and I think, and I think um, some of the more cautious voices which have responded to this uh, from within the European Union have sounded exactly that note. Mark Rutter, the Dutch Prime Minister, said rather so, disingenuously, just bear in mind that China may be serving its own national interests. Well, of course, China <laughs> is serving its own national interests here. It is not yeah. simply... It's it, not it, it a it naive is, thing to say, well, really, that well, way, isn't it? I think naive he was, of Italy not I, to realise. I think that's it. exactly yeah. it. I yeah. think he was, he was suggesting politely in a diplomatic way, most diplomatic way he could, that Italy might be... be- rather naive here. But I think you know China is keen to see this initiative go forward. In order to do so, it needs allies in as many parts of the world as it can get them. And it's been very good at selecting them. This, after all, is, is a game that Russia has played before, too. It is one of the p- possible weaknesses of the European Union, that you still... It is, although it has a unity of purpose and supposedly, in some cases, has a common foreign policy, it nevertheless uh, is made up of national... Of, of different nations with their own national interests. And China can spot up opportunities here, and it seems to have done that. Um, and it is one of the EU's weaknesses that outsiders, are, if they're able to spot these possibilities, can exploit them. Um, and I think China's probably you know, trying to build better, ben- more beneficial ties uh, for the future. I mean, China has not had a great press in the West uh, this year either, um, if one thinks about the questions which have surrounded Huawei and whether it's a reliable mm. partner for government infrastructure in various countries. So this is a chance, possibly, for it to show its, itself in a good light domestically and also as a serious international player. Of course. But I
0: guess also as well, as a ball, that this is a way for Italy, if you like, to actually promote itself because, yes, you have this European project, but there's a lot of resentment towards the Germans and to actually have the heft of China behind it, Italy could turn around and say, well, actually, you know, you can't just kind of relegate us as a as a top tier player but somewhere further, further further at the end of the table you now have to listen to us so the the issues that you've been backing away from migration etc we can now talk about it. So in other words, because it's got Beijing behind it, it feels that it can be a bit more assertive at the at the table.
2: It can be listened to. Possibly if it works like that, although I don't quite see the mechanism whereby one translates into the other myself. I mean, the countries that, that have uh, committed to Belt and Road are committing to um, a project in which more than 80% um, of the contracts have gone to Chinese firms, in which a great deal of the promised investment. You know the stuff that's in the memorandums, uh, memoranda of, of understanding, doesn't appear, and and it, which was criticised in a letter signed by. All EU ambassadors in Beijing, except for Hungary, only last year for its lack of transparency and its lack of its lack its undermining of of the, the rules, the the level playing field, all of the things that the that the European Union actually gives benefit to uh, its its member states for and if you look at, again at the states that have signed up or seen very keen, they actually get far more funding from the European Union than they do from from China. Mm. So they're um, basically
0: shooting themselves in the foot with this pact.
2: Well, uh, the trade tends to go one way, quite mm. honestly. The fact that, that Italy hasn't, or like Britain, hasn't managed to export a great deal to China isn't to do with not being in the Belt and Road. It's to do with not having stuff that the Chinese want to buy. We have the same problem. So the balance of trade is heavily against uh, Europe and signing up to Belt road isn't going to change that
0: right but final question there to james because look when you look at the eu there, there does seem to have been this sort of philosophy of all for one and one for all but this really appears to have shot it to pieces so can it formulate a sensible response
1: well, I think it's going to try to, but I think it does understand that countries will sign more or less bilateral deals. I mean, uh, under Mr. Berlusconi, they had a very close relationship with, uh, with Russia, for example, as I mentioned, as I referred to earlier. And the other thing is energy supplies, too. That's, been a, that's a thing that's something that Russia, too, has managed to find these bilateral deals, too. For those countries to which it supplies energy, it can afford to or try to seek to build a different relationship, one in which it has more leverage than it does with the bloc as a whole.
0: OK, then. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, and my guests, Isabel Hilton and James Rogers. And coming up next, Venezuela falls out of the International Development Bank as two Russian planes reportedly carrying military equipment and dozens of troops land in the country.
1: Rome boasts an ancient specialisation in restoring the masterpieces of the past. But thanks to innovative technology, the works of Rome's art restorers is also very current. Monaco Films traveled to the Eternal City to visit restoration studio Merlini Storti. The founders of the all women team were trained by the former chief restorer at Vatican Museums, Maurizio De Luca. We can understand how restoration has always been present and how, from the historical background, schools of restoration were founded that have formed a generation of restorers who currently are considered the best in the world. The Art of Restoration, playing now in the film section at Monocle.com
0: with me are James Rogers and Isabel Hilton. Now, Venezuela's political crisis, which has pitched President Nicolás Maduro against the opposition leader, Juan Guaidó, has forced the International Development Bank to scrap a meeting in Beijing. Now, China, a Venezuelan ally, objected when the IDB replaced President Maduro's representative with the Guaidó supporter, Ricardo Hausmann, who's criticised China's international operations. Meanwhile, two Russian planes with soldiers and military equipment on board reportedly landed in Venezuela over the weekend. Moscow, which has loaned Venezuela billions of dollars, claims the planes were fulfilling "quote technical military contracts." James, you speak fluent Russian. What does that mean in English?
1: <laughs> uh, technical military contracts. It, 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 what it means. What it means uh, in English is it means that they are saying to the world. Um, Mr. Maduro's administration is one of our allies and we are making sure that we stand by our commitments to them. This is what this is the mainstay of Russia's modern foreign policy uh, and it's the same sort of idea which obviously is done on a much much larger and more significant scale in Syria to saying to the world when we Say to somebody, "You're our ally. We're going to look after you." And they're, but by implication, they're saying to the people in the in uh, in Russia and the rest of the former Soviet Union, "Look at what happened to Georgia and Ukraine, and look at the United States didn't really." So look it's going after to them. play well at so home.
0: To, so to assuage any fears on the part of the public in Russia, I
1: suspect. It, it, I, I suspect the public in Russia probably doesn't lose too much sleep over this. But I think for those of them who do care about what's going on, and this has of course, been you can see from the way that Russia has responded to this officially, it's very much the way that it's been portrayed in Russia as, um, those uh, international um, countries which have supported uh, Juan Guaido are seen as backing a legal coup. That's the terms in which Russia sees this. There are parallels with other parts of the world, which is that whenever you try regime change, it's going to go wrong. And whenever you're going to try to change a regime for with which Russia has close ties and which Russia has committed to support, you will not find Russia wavering in that support. And that's really what the message they're trying to send here right. is. Right.
0: You said the world, but Isabel, I would take the world as shorthand for the United States of America because before Mr. Trump, had his good day, i.e. today, with the Mueller report, he was doing quite a bit of finger-wagging in Venezuela's direction and hinted that he wasn't just going to leave it at sanctions. He would probably take it a little bit further, but I guess that having all these Russian troops there on the military technical military contracts might dissuade him.
2: Well, it's going to be interesting if his friend Mr. Putin is going to go on doing this. How much closer is it going to get? Um, but to be fair to Donald Trump, not something I often say, um, this is much wider than Trump. You know, it, 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 pretty much all of Latin America, and this is the Inter-American Development Bank. So the members of this bank are all um, Western Hemisphere. So there's the United States and Canada, but there's also all of the countries of Latin America, the fact that they were going to have their meeting in China was a sign of how important China's China now is as an investor in Latin America. But don't forget that China has very large loans out to Venezuela, which it looks as though it's not going to get back. So the other interesting thing about this is, I mean, I think China has played this extraordinarily ineptly, by the way. China has almost no contact with the opposition. Mm. The opposition, you know, the only contact that, that I have heard of being arranged um, vis-a-vis China from the uh, opposition was, was arranged by a postgraduate student in international relations currently in Britain. So, you know, this is not exactly an impressive diplomatic effort on the part of the Chinese. They have a lot of military contacts themselves, but they don't really want Venezuela to end up like Syria. There is absolutely nothing in it for them. You know, at the moment, much of the population of Venezuela is eating out of dustbins, and oil production has virtually collapsed. So unless, I mean, the couldn't even keep the lights on till the Chinese sent people in to fix it. So this is not a promising uh, scenario. And it's not a great advert for the virtues of Chinese lending or Russian support.
0: Yeah, and, and it is quite extraordinary when you think about this, James, because I mean we're, we're talking about a huge financial institution here, they they try to shy away from geopolitical spats. Mm. And this bank suddenly gets caught up in something we shouldn't forget as well. But there were other countries which would have sent representatives to this meeting that do need this money. So they've been shortchanged.
1: They have. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big call to move any sort of international summit, but obviously they've decided that that's the, the, the circumstance of dictated that that should happen. But it's, it is, it um, is you know, a situation which the, the organisers of the summit clearly wish they hadn't found themselves. And, and it's, it's always uh, difficult to know how to respond to these sort of things. You can just hope it goes away or you can try to take some sort of positive view on this. But it is um, a very difficult and very complicated situation with with the United States having said some fairly direct things in the, in the shape of some of Mr Trump's earlier uh, remarks, as as Isabel was referring to. But also, you know, as I say, this uh, this Russian move is very much one just reminding the United States we have interest there, we are there and you're not just going to get away with doing exactly what you feel like doing there without our say-so.
0: Yeah, because China's been slightly odd in, in Venezuela in that on the one hand it's tried to project itself as a, as a neutral player, but it has been pumping money into the system. And as you said, Isabel, They've actually sent over engineers to deal with these power outages. So this claim to neutrality, frankly, sounds bogus
2: well they're still they're still supporting um um Maduro and they and they have, you know, no conversation, no active conversation with the uh, the uh, the opposition they They might be in a position to persuade the military that they could have the kind of personal guarantees and the helicopter out to some other um, uh, destination that would persuade them that this project is really going nowhere and it's time to bail out. But I don't think they've been very good at that either. Um, And the embarrassment over moving the IDB summit is considerable. China's trying to project itself as, you know, the kind of place that hosts these big, important multilateral meetings. And this was you know, we've seen this crisis coming for, for three weeks to a month and the Chinese have been very, very slow at understanding that what an embarrassment this was going to be. Mm, sends out the wrong kind of message. OK, let's
0: move on now to our final topic because America has welcomed the fall of the Islamic State group's caliphate, although it did say that the terror group is still a threat. The warning came after Kurdish-led Syrian democratic forces, the SDF, raised victory flags in the Syrian town of Baguz, IS's last stronghold. Now, despite losing territory in Syria and Iraq, IS still remains active in countries from Nigeria to the Philippines. And at the height of its power, the group controlled 34,000 square miles across Syria and Iraq. So before we try to explore what went wrong, let's try to quantify the degree of the threat. How much of a danger does IS pose to the West? And is there a possibility that given the right conditions, they could regroup and come back perhaps more powerfully than before?
1: And I think there's, there's, a, there's a few things to say. Firstly, and I think it is true to say that ISIS was born of la- large-scale regional instability. And that is a state of affairs which largely persists, perhaps not to the same extent as it did when they first sort of shocked the world, really, five years ago by sieging, seizing large swathes of, of Iraq and Syria. But unless and until... Iraq and Syria uh, and neighbouring regions are, are more stable than there will always be. Uh, groups like this recruit from disaffected young men and to a lesser extent young women who have no employment prospects and have an opportunity to believe in something and to get a day's wages and to, to join. Mm. Some of them are genuine ideologues, others are, are people who really have, you know, all groups like this recruit from people who have really got um, few other prospects. So I think there's a couple of things to say to that. Firstly, um, it's very hard to foresee that they could ever re- we recapture the same extent of territory which they did five years ago. But what they had going for them then was the large element of surprise. You know, as we remember, they almost came to the outskirts of Baghdad mm. after all. But I think it's very interesting to look at the way that Western governments have responded to this. Both the French foreign minister and the UK foreign secretary have been extremely guarded. And saying, you know, the ideology hasn't gone away. Um
0: and they're right the can't be finished, transported and, they're right. um, and it can um, be transported
1: it may be that that massive amount of physical territory which the organization held has gone and it has mm. but it's not does not true to say as you said Juliet you know the massive number of countries in which they have supporters and the way that they are able to operate in these you know unconventional uh, using uh, the methods of urban terrorism means that you don't actually need very many people to be a very serious threat mm.
2: and isabel Absolutely. And, and, you know, before ISIS captured its territory and declared this caliphate, we never imagined that an organization like this would be fighting a war of positions anyway. This is not how they operate. Um, th- this is an a, a inter- international, you know, terrorist organization. And if you look at the number of attacks through February, for example, when, you know, their defeat was being loudly signaled, it was increasing, you know, elsewhere other than, than you know, where they were fighting their main battle in Syria. So I don't think there's any doubt that this is going to continue. And I also am not entirely sure that Syria is settled, certainly not settled in mm-hmm. Iraq.
0: Mm, OK, then. Well, a sound note on which to end this. There's so much more to discuss on this topic, but sadly, time is our enemy. But we have reached the end of today's show. I'd like to extend my thanks to Isabel Hilton and James Rogers. Thanks again for joining us here at Midori House. And today's show was produced by Daniel Bach, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Godrick. Our studio manager was David Stevens. More music coming up next than at 1900 hours. It's the Monocle Culture Show with Robert Bound. We'll also have more on the day's mainstream stories on the Monocle Daily. That's at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That is
1: 1800 London time.